As we remain standing for the reading of God's Word, I would invite you to turn in your Bibles. If you, We're going to be touching on this later in our sermon, but this will be kind of the central text that will be kind of driving a lot of our early thoughts in our new series this morning. Romans 8, I'm changing a little bit from the bulletin here last minute. Romans 8, we're going to read 12 through 23. Let us hear the word of the Lord together. So then, brothers, we are not debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For, your live, for if you live according to the flesh, you will not die. I mean, you will die, excuse me. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears with that spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of children of God. For we know that we... For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoptions as sons, the spirit of redemption of our bodies. I'll go back and keep going through verse 24. For in this hope we are saved. We were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. You may have a seat. Well, it is good to be back with you this morning after a little jaunt across the East Coast for our family for Christmas, to visit family and whatnot, and to do some fun things, take a little bit of a break, but it is good to be back with you and um, missed you dearly last week. We got to fellowship with the church in Lynchburg, that was a, um, a good help for us, but it's certainly not the same as being home with your own people. And so I just want to wish you, since I haven't had the opportunity to do so, Happy New Year to you. And, uh, and I pray that peace would be with you this year, not only today, but in the year to come. And, uh, and so that's my heart for you as we begin to kind of set the course for 2024, both as a church and as our own, and our own unique lives. And I hope that the last couple of weeks of the 2023 year and these first few days of, the 20, of 2024 are ready to help set your, your focus on how God would want us to embrace this new year and to, to think about how we play a part in, 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 in being ambassadors to God's kingdom, both as individual families, but also uh, as uh, members of this church and, of course, being members of God's global church as well. And so to kick off the new year... The elders have been discussing, we mentioned this to you in our members meetings uh, a couple of different times, but we've been discussing about just those areas of our life of our church that we think they're just important that we need to touch on here and there to kind of keep us focused on how God wants to shape us as disciples, to shape us as followers of Christ in the world in which we now dwell. And we, in, in consultation with Phil Newton, you remember he came and preached for us back in August he met with our elders. We had a wonderful conversation talking about the life of our church. And one of the things that came out of that conversation um, is, is we wanted to talk about how does these different areas of our, of our lives, and one of those areas was money. Now, no one, and I can assure you just about no preacher, there are some preachers who enjoy this way too much, I do not, um, wants to talk about money that often. Um, and, uh, and for lots of different reasons why I don't. In fact, to be honest with you, in 26 years of ministry, and this is to my shame, I have tried to avoid talking about money as much as possible. And uh, that's not, by the way, in any way a, a something I would want to um, adore, to be honest with you. I think it's one of those areas that actually points to some areas of my own life as to why I would avoid this particular topic or even why um, the, how, how sometimes it's kind of one of those untouchable topics within the church. 
And uh, to be fair with you, as I said before, there, this resistance, I think, arises out of a couple of places. So if you'll indulge me, I want to share with you where I think some of these resistances come from my heart and maybe why they might even be resistances in the church's heart as it relates to this, uh, this topic of money and wealth and how God wants us and how it's a major part of our life as people and how God wants us to think about it. I think the one reason, and the, probably the most important reason that I avoid, have avoided it, um, again, to my own shame and to my own discredit, is that there has been a lot of heavy-handed teaching on money out there in the world. Uh, I think not only in the prosperity gospel sectors, but a lot of times even in the larger evangelical sectors, there's just been a lot of heavy-handed, manipulative ways of that there, we talk about money within the church that is devoid of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's devoid of the grace that we have experienced in Jesus Christ. And so you'll hear things, now again, not just in prosperity gospel circles, but you'll hear things, maybe not specifically like sowing seeds of faith and, 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 and then followed by empty promises of all the blessings you're going to receive if you just, you just do a little bit better, you just give a little bit more. And those kinds of things, I think, strike um, Honestly, for me, it just it, it sends a cold chill down my spine when I see pastors use those kinds of rhetoric when we talk about money, and it's so disconnected from the story of redemption. And for me, that's one of the reasons why. And so much of the talk of money is not only just this kind of really bad idea um, that goes out there about, you know, uh, you sow your seed of faith and you'll get your blessing, but also sometimes it comes with just a, a lot of really heavy guilt and shame that comes out of this, and it's only focused on giving more to the church. And I want to say up front, though, I hope that the fruit of this, some of the things we're going to talk about the next few weeks, will, will result in a very generous people in a lot of different ways. That's ultimately one of the goals we're going to have, because Jesus was generous with us, yes? But I don't want, I don't want you to think that the, the motivation behind this is not just so that we pad our bank account, bank account here at Grace Church, but that it actually results in a church that's so so vitally healthy because and, and, and we allow the gospel to touch on every aspect of our lives and that includes our wallets our bank accounts our retirements and all the different things that we do um, and certainly it involves how we give and are generous with the money and so sometimes when people talk about money they just want you they, they, they zero everything down to this percentage you know you got to be focused on this percentage. And so they lay the guilt on you about this percentage it's much like we talked about in Sunday school when it comes to Bible reading plans it's just like these kind of things kind of lay heavy on our shoulders, don't they? And then when we, when we fail one part, then we either, one, feel lots of guilt, or we just give up entirely on it. And we need to kind of walk away from that knowing that we live under the, the, the banner of Christ, under the, the shield of grace, and we can now know that, one, we are loved and forgiven and we are accepted in Christ, but also that empowers us to think differently about the way the good gifts that God gives us and material gifts, the earthly gifts that God gives us as well. So we want to avoid in this conversation over the next, uh, over in January, we're going we're gonna to walk through this through January, kind of a, a law only approach to money, but a kind of law gospel approach, meaning what has God said about money? What does God money reveal about our hearts? What does it say about the sin that resi resides in there? What is money, uh, what, what kind of commands does God want us, does he have for our money? Because he does have commands and they're good commands and they should be things that we should want and desire. But also how that then is rooted in, the empowerment of that, the hope in that, in our lives, actually is rooted in the gospel of grace. So this is extremely important to me. So I think that's one of the first reasons why I'm, I'm some oftentimes resistant and therefore want to make sure that, that we don't lay a heavy burden on people's shoulders that's not necessarily in Scripture. I think the other side of it is, if I'm just going to be personal with you this morning, is there's just sometimes discouragement in my own relationship with money. And I say that to you because I don't think I'm alone in that. I, I think as I have conversations with you and le even different people in our church, sometimes leaders in our church, we, just, we can all be honest about the fact that sometimes our own relationship money hasn't always been the most trusting in Christ, has it? And that's been the case same, same in my life. Like in my relationship with money was modeled in a home where money was not seen as ultimately a stewardship to God. It just wasn't. It was, it was a means to happiness and security. And so my childhood, by and large, was nominally Christian, and church attendance was more or less just the memorable seasons and days of the year, except for a few sparse times throughout the year, until my senior year. 
And if I were to, again, if I, if I could just pare down the operating system that I kind of, that was formed in me from a really early age about money, here's what I would say it is. I just said it a minute ago, number one, money was the means, not a means, but it was the means for happiness and security, though it was never explicitly said that way. It was just the operating system under it, yeah? Maybe you feel the same way. Maybe that's something that you heard somewhere along the line. And so we kind of lived in this kind of dual reality of poverty ethic, right? We never had enough. And if we had more, we would give more. If we had more, we would save more, all that kind of idea. But then it was then paired off with this other side of it, which was like, well, I deserve more because look at me, I'm just poor old me. And therefore, then when I felt like it and I just felt like I had enough, I would just go overspend and throw things on a credit card. That was kind of, that was kind of the idea that well, I would, was modeled for me as a child. And unfortunately, I modeled as a young adult and early in our own marriage. That's what we did. And we saw this, especially as a child, in our Christmas time. Where it was almost like that was the time of year that you just went ahead and just let loose. And that's the reason why. And we know this. And listen, that's a statistic. Look at the statistics. Go, go right now and go see what, how much more credit card debt went up in December, right? Um, and so I lived and have lived, unfortunately, sometimes with the idea that if there was money in the account, you spent it. If, you, if it wasn't, you didn't until you just got fed up with it and you just went ahead and just let loose when it came to spending money you did not have and so then putting savings away sometimes has always been difficult and putting away it and then and planning ahead for things so again as i said before i think in my young adult years even our early years of our marriage this was one of those things that just kind of marked our relationship my relationship with money it was unhealthy and still is something and if i'm being very frank with you the lord is still working on in my life in various ways although praise be to god he has changed so much of it he's changed so much of it and it's been a progressive step-by-step, step, and I praise God for that. But what underneath that is probably one of the most uh, deceptive thoughts that I think has run underneath so much of my relationship with money. And I wonder, and I've heard this and I've talked to people about this, I wonder if maybe you would feel, find it to be true, is this is idea. Well, I'll save more, I'll give more when I make more, or when I have more but that day never comes does it it just doesn't it hasn't come in my life it has come when we save more it's because we've been deliberate and we put our money before the lord and we've said god help us to do this when we've given more it's because when we put it before the lord and said god help us trust you and 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 and, and trust that you are the one who's sovereign over all the affairs of our lives for most of our marriage, this is not just because of, this was never necessary because we are people who are tended to overspend. There was just always reason to spend. Y'all know what it is to raise families in this culture. There's always more money to spend. It's always a bill. There's always something out there, and it just kind of gets you discouraged, and you just want to go, okay, well, then I'm just going to avoid this, and I'm just going to just pay the bill and go on with it or just let it pile up. But I know most of the people in this room, like myself, we don't, we don't go out here. We're not buying, you know, expensive things all the time or live in highfalutin houses or buy many clothes. Like, I think in our house, we have like four or five pieces of furniture that we bought in the 18 years of marriage. The rest are in hand-me-downs or something that we found or someone given to us. Here's the reality, though. At the end of the day, it's not so much about lifestyle. It's not about money. It's not about spending. It's not about debt or lifestyle. It's about heart. So much of our relationship with money, my relationship with money, if I'm just being honest with you, and that God has been slowly and progressively and faithfully working on my life, is just to uncover what my heart most delights in, what my heart most rests in, and how that impacts the way that I feel like about the now and the present. It's the meism that drives most of my life. It's the presentism, you know, living for this moment alone and not living with eternity in mind, yeah? And I think that's been the main thing. And so when we start thinking about this conversation about money over these next few weeks, I put these things out there before you for a couple of different reasons. One is, if anything I've said to you resonates with you this morning, I say it to you because I want you to know I get it. I assure you your elders get it. And we are wrestling with this too. And, but we also want you to hear, and I want you to hear, that there's grace for it. Because 
if there's been any evidence of any grace, it has to be this in my life because God has been abundantly patient with me. He has been steady with me. He's been steady with you. He's provided for us. He's provided for me. He's provided for you what we needed when we need it. And, we, and, 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 and as we've walked, even when I walked in seasons or when you've walked in seasons of avoiding getting serious about money, God has been gracious. And so I want to say that to you. Like there's never been a time when God's just been exasperated with me when it comes to this and just said, Tom, just to save more. Right? Like, or, or just give more. There's never been like, there's been a, like, he's never been like, come on, like we do with ourselves and our kids. Like, just, can you just do better? No, actually, the way he has related to me is what Paul Tripp says in his book, Redeeming Money, that I found very helpful. He reminds me, reminds you, your Savior will never mock your foolishness. Your Savior will never mock your foolishness. He'll never tell you that you're getting just what you deserve. He won't tire of your mistakes and get irritated because you're so stubborn. No, he lavishes on his people, you and I, grace on those who are lost, who are rebels, who are liars, who are cheaters. I love that. So helpful. Because it reminds me, when I start thinking about this topic, this very important part, it's, it's, it's kind of like a spiritual barometer in our lives. We'll talk more about that here in a moment. Is that even when, there's, when the temperature's good and bad when it comes to this particular area or any other area of our lives, our God is faithful to us. He's gracious to us and he lavishes grace on us. Now, because that's true, though, we need to recognize two more things that I think hopefully shape the way we do this series on money. Money is one of the spiritual barometers that I mentioned a second ago of life, and it exposes the conditions of our heart. That's what I've been trying to articulate by using some of my own story and relationship. Grace is an invitation to you and I, brothers and sisters, this morning to allow God's mercy into the deepest fears that we have in our lives, to the deepest discouragements that we have in our life. And God uses money, he uses wealth, as well as lots of other things. We're just focusing in on this particular topic for the next couple of weeks to expose those places in our hearts that need his mercy and need his grace more desperately. And so what I want to do is, even though we understand that there's grace here, one of the things that the Bible invites us to do is to not avoid talking about money. You know why? Because the Bible's teaching on money is very clear, and it's very gracious. God graciously engages in In fact, did you know that Jesus talked about money as anyone used money as almost, almost so many of his illustrations? as it relates to exposing the condition of the, of the hearts of the Pharisees and the people he talked to, do you understand that this is a big deal? But that leads us to the third thought. God is gracious, even though we may have not be where we want to be in this regard, and that money is a spiritual barometer that exposes the condition of our hearts. But here's what's the wonderful news, and it's why we read Genesis 8 this morning, and we'll come back to it here in a few moments. Grace also empowers new living and new freedom as we walk in the light of God's goodness and mercy. Let me say that again. Grace empowers new living and new freedom in the area, in all the areas of our life, but particularly in this area of money, as we walk into the light of God's goodness and his mercy. And so what I want to do for the balance of our time this morning is I want to just kind of set us up with some proper foundations. We're going to look at two sets of foundation this morning, two sets of, uh, of how God wants us to think about things we've got to build out first. And so here's my main idea that I hope we'll get to both in this morning, but also set us up for the rest of our series. A gospel-driven relationship with money and wealth must be built on the proper foundation of God's creational design. If we're going to have any hope that we can have our money both be something that we're not yoked to, not feel guilt in, and not feel shame in, that we can actually see being used for the glory of God in the world that we have around us, and we can see more people minister to, we can see this church thrive, we can see missionaries sent, we can see families thrive. If there's any hope with that, we've got to go back to the foundation that the Bible sets out about our stewardship. And that's why I've named this first sermon, this first uh, sermon in the series, um, the ground for our gospel stewardship. 
And then we'll look at, we're going to look at, and you'll see in your guide here, the fa- four foundations and four identities this morning. Four foundations and four identities. Let's look at four foundations for gospel stewardship. You can follow along in your guide if you want to. Number one is the universe is centered on the incalculable glory of God. Now, we see this most clearly in Genesis 1, do we not? I mean, it just doesn't get any clearer than that. Look at just verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Let's just full stop. Do you understand that like all of our theology goes back to this one statement? So much is loaded into this very first verse, and everything else in the Bible comes back to this verse. There's not one verse in the Bible, there's not one truth, there's not one doctrine that you and I hold to and confess as God's people that doesn't come back to this most primary of observations about the nature of life. That the universe is centered on the incalculable glory of God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's simple, isn't it? Yet it's so profound. And it shapes everything we presume about life, does it not? That, that life is not primarily about us, is it? It's not about our wants, dear brother and sister. It's not about our dreams. It's not about our purposes. It's not about our expectations. It's not about our plans. Unfortunately, way too many people live this way. And unfortunately, even many Christians live this way. They just live on, this is the kind of life I expect, and I'm going to live, I'm going to go there until I find that life. And so there's this reel that's going on that I see, I've seen come up on my, in social media a couple different times. And it's this young 25-ish young lady who's driving an entirely way too nice a car that she should be driving in her life, as far as I'm concerned. Um, and she's ranting about the fact that she's graduated from, from school with this marketing degree. And she's like, i got to go work in a restaurant to make all this money. And, I'm, and I'm, I'm fighting the system because I can't make the salary that I deserve. And she thinks she should make six figures on her salary at 25 years old. And by the way, my granddad would have something to say about that. Yours probably would too. Yeah? And so she's ranting about her salary that she thinks she deserves. And, 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 and the reason I use that as an example is because... Isn't this the kind of entitlement that is so rampant everywhere we go today? That we just kind of come out thinking that we deserve to have the, 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 the red carpet rolled out for us everywhere we go? But I'd like to suggest to you that it's easy for me to look at the real and look at Facebook and Instagram. And it's easy for me to pass by the fact that this probably exists in many people who sit in the pews on Sunday. It, it can exist and has existed in my own heart. Very much so. And it isn't too far away from my relationship, maybe some of your relationships when it comes to money. Now, we may not be that brazen about putting a reel out there that hits thousands of viewers. Maybe we're a little bit more subtle than that. But let's just go into the inward parts of our hearts and ask ourselves, are we that different? No, what the verse implies, what this core verse implies is that life is not about you and me, is it? It's about God. It's about his will, it's about his purpose, it's about his pleasure, it's about his plan. And what that fundamentally means is that dealing with our relationship with anything in the world, specifically our money, doesn't begin with what? New budgets, new plans, new jobs, new whatever. But it begins with one simple word, does it not? Surrender. Surrender. Surrendering to God as sovereign ruler, right? Surrendering to God as truly wise. He's way wiser with you than you are with your money. I can tell you he's that with me. That God is truly good. And that he doesn't, he actually does take care of his children. He does provide and do good things for his children and for his people. And he does good things for the world in his common grace. But it's important that we recognize this most, most fundamental of foundations on which we build any understanding about any aspect of our life, much less money. That the world is about God. That he created, he gets to say what happens with it, and he gets to demand what he wishes from it. And that includes you and me. Leads us to the second foundation. We've rejected that. The world is broken by sin and rebellion, and that's our story. The world is broken by sin and rebellion and that is our story look at verse chapter 3 verse 1 of genesis now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the lord had made 
He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of the tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that you, that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for, for food and that it was delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit, ate, and, be, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of the both were open, and they, were, they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Verse 8, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord, got among the tree, got, um, um, I'm sorry, from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I command you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Now, just think about what has just untranspired here. This is what it deals with. Like what the Bible says about our lack of surrender. That the serpent came in and twisted what? The good creation, the good word, the good design of God. He twists in our hearts. And then Adam and Eve in turn, turn from God's good rule and trust in what? Self-rule. But the problem with self-rule is it ended up resulting in what? Shame and hiding. This is the only thing that self-rule can do because you and I can't rule sufficiently and it can only lead to shame and hiding and it can only lead to blame shifting like Adam did with God about the woman he gave him, right? The result of this then, of course, is their rebellion is the curse and it ended up with enmity between uh, creation and mankind, between the serpent and mankind and it ended up with multiple, uh, multiplied childbirth, twisted relationships between husbands and wives and hard and joyless labor. This is the result of self-rule. This is the result. So when we apply that to our relationship with money and we apply that to wealth and whatnot, massive problems arise with, when money is divorced from the good and wise rule of God. Amen? It just does. And we all know this too well. I don't know about you, but money temptation greets me every morning when I wake up. What, what bill do I have to pay? What is it that I long to have? What is it that I long to see? Whatever. Money lies are told to us every day. I mean, clever marketing schemes. They're just out there telling you that you can't live without this product. You can't live without this lifestyle. You can't live if, you don't, if you're not aspiring to this. So money is presented much like what the serpent did for their personal wisdom and knowledge of good and evil. It was presented as a savior, a self-saving savior. And it's done so every day for every one of us. And so if God is at the center of all the universe and the world is broken and we're part of that story, we need to recognize that the story doesn't end there. The story gets much better from there. That God offers, number three, grace and redemption that is life transforming. That's the third foundation. That you and I must operate. If we're going to come to the table and we really want to say, God, this is yours. It's not me. It's not my life. It's not my place to talk about these things. I must come to the table and recognize that the place I start isn't going to be more self-rule. It's not going to be me trying to figure out and do better with all this. It's actually going to be coming to, coming to the feet of grace, coming to the foot of the throne of Christ and his redemption and recognizing that it's there that I start, that starts the process of transformation. And it starts right there in Genesis 3 itself. Verses 14 and 15, right there in the midst of the curse, because you have done this, God says, curse to you above all livestock, talking to the serpent, above all the beasts of the field, in your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat in all the days of your life, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, and she and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, we've said this many times, you know I allude to this all the time, this is, this is the proto-euangelion, this is the gospel before the gospel is preached. This is the hope right there that's established right there at the end in creation of all the promises of God that are going to be that God, that God would stamp out sin, that he would, he, would, he would destroy and he would crush the head of sin. He would crush the head of the serpent in all ways. 
And we need to recognize that this is where it begins. And it goes, continues on, of course, throughout the rest of the scriptures, reveal this point and find their, their amen in Jesus. But even though sin exists, friends and brothers and sisters, grace abounds. And it abounds right there at the beginning of the story and continues to get more and more blossoms, more and more into real life for all of us. And so the work of grace begins this process right there and through the, and through the life of faith, the process of heart change. See, sin is not so much an environment issue. The sin that Adam and Eve dealt with was not an environment issue, although there was the tree and whatever else. The sin that was really a problem was a heart issue. And it's grace that mends those broken hearts of ours. And heart change gives way to progressive change in our lives and behaviors and all the such. And so what this means for you and I, and here's the good hope for all of us guys in this third foundation, is that there's no mountain. If you, and I, don't know where, I don't know where everyone's story is financially here. But I do know that statistics tell us that debt is a huge problem in our nation. But there's no, do you understand this? There's no debt that God's grace isn't bigger than. Isn't it bigger? That we don't need to be paralyzed by the fear of not having enough. Or that God will not provide. That we can confess the idolatry that we oftentimes have to material things and money and whatnot. And that we can face our money issues with hope because God is wise. And he lavishes his wisdom upon us via grace. And that we can calm out that debt. We can calm out that idolatry. We can live with joy and contentment now. And that we can give up old money habits. And we can embrace new money habits. All those things are yes and amen in Christ because of redemption. But it starts with rooting ourselves and grounding ourselves in the person and work of Jesus. It doesn't mean it's going to be automatic. It doesn't mean it's not going to be hard work. Because we do live in a world where labor is tough. And we live in between those two advents. As we've been talking about in our Advent season. But what that means is, because of grace, number four is critical. And it's really the kind of sets us up for the second identity, second set of identities. We are created and saved for something bigger than ourselves. Brothers and sisters, do you know that? Do I know that? We see this in Genesis 1.26, that the pinnacle of creation is mankind. Let us make man in our own image, verse 26. Chapter 1, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the, over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the, on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And, for every, and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. He didn't say it's just good like he did in the other days. It was very good. The pinnacle of creation is that we are made not for self-glory, but we are made for who? God's glory. And that was lost in the garden, but it's also gloriously recovered in Christ. It's gloriously covered. What Paul talks about in, uh, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter, um, chapter 5. Let's just read for it there. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Verse 17, chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us, who, reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. He, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So where what was lost in creation is now recovered gloriously in Christ, and now we can live as new remade people, images of Christ. 
images of God. And so mankind, especially God's redeemed people, are cre- were created and are saved to live, as what it says there in 2 Corinthians 5, ambassadors that point to a better way, a better and more eternal flourishing. And brothers and sisters, you cannot argue that our money and wealth do not have a, a big part of that. Amen? It just does. So, the world is God's. The world has been broken by sin, and we're part of that story. But grace transforms, and we are now created and lived and saved to live for something bigger than ourselves. Now, with all that in mind, let's look at the second set of four for a few moments. These identities. Because if we get this first foundation correct, we'll then begin to kind of relate to money and any other area of our life through the proper identities. We recognize what's behind some of our own relationship with money, doesn't it? Number one, we're creatures. We're not the creator. We are not the authors of our own stories. God is not merely an actor in your story. He's not just some, someone that we can allow come out on stage when we want to as some kind of you know, extra. No, God is the playwright. You are not the playwright. God is the director. You are not the director. God is the financier of your life. You are not the financier of your life. God is the one who's allowing you to be part and me be a part of a bigger story than me. See, we play a role in our micro stories in a much bigger macro story. That's what we're a part of. We are God's idea. And, and he graciously allows us and involves mankind in a special way in his creation project. I mean, just think about this. Who does God talk to? Adam and Eve. You and I. He doesn't speak to creation per se. He speaks to his, crea- his, his pinnacle creation, those made in his own image. He speaks to them. And that's why is that so important? Because without him talking to us, We wander around in the garden all by ourselves, not knowing what to do with anything. We need a God who speaks. Otherwise, we have no clue who we are, what we're to do on our own. And so when we get, we go back to the topic of money. We can't find our own way with money and make it up as we go. We have to go back to the God who speaks, who reveals and shows us what this great character is. And sadly, what we tend to do, and I mean, we do this in the church. We tend to do the exact opposite. We, we kind of handle money as if God hasn't spoken about it. He hasn't spoken about our discipleship. And he hasn't spoken about, through his word, our identity, our core identity as creatures made in his image. But as much as we are made in his image as creatures, we got to remember, though, again, we're sinners. We're sinners. And I've said this, I don't know how many times last month, that we live between these two great advents, between Christ's first coming and his second coming, we still live in a sin-marred world, but we're not ruled by it. And though we have remaining sin that still prompts us to live, divorcing all kinds of aspects of our life from God, money is just one of, those, one of the ways in which we do that. And we've got to, we got to recognize that even though we're sinners, and these sinners, they're affected by sin, it's going to affect the way we relate to money. And so we don't just need wise strategies to fix the money problem, do we? Um, That's nothing more than self-atonement. So when God destroyed the earth and remade it again for Noah and his sons go out into the the, the plain of Shinar, what do they do? Instead of doing what God told them to do, which is go and fill the earth, right? What do they go do? They go build a little city. And they start building this city into the clouds. And what are they trying to do? They're trying to self-atone. They're trying to fix what they broke. They're trying to show God, we're not that far off. And friends, you and I do the same thing with all kinds of things in our lives, and money is just one of the areas that we do it. It just never works. And that is why you and I need the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That's why it matters. It shows us that you and I can't do this by ourselves. And it draws us slowly and gently into repentance. 
It's the kind of repentance that we see, although it's not the specific topic, but we see in Psalm 51 when David is repenting of his sin with Bathsheba. But let's just read through a a few verses here. Verse 1, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Do you understand what a bold song that David is singing here? He has committed grievous sin before God. He's been confronted in that sin, yet he has, the, deter- he has, the, str- he has the, the confidence that he can go before his God because his God is gracious to him. His God has made a covenant with him, and he can say these kind of things. I know my transgressions. He's not afraid to own what it is. See, if, we're, if we know we're sinners, the first place we start is just being honest about it. I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. See, the first place of our sin in any area of our life is never about towards our family, towards our spouses, towards our jobs, towards others. It is first because we don't trust God. We don't trust God. Verse Five, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin, I did, and did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in the truth and the inward being. He, he delights when you and I come to him and are just really honest about the fact that our sin is what it is. And he teaches us wisdom from a secret heart. That's what it says there in verse 6. Purge me then with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the, bo- let, let the bones that you have broken rejoice and hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. And then we can just keep on going from there, but we can stop. See, sinners need more than anything, not new strategies, not new restraint, not new education. That's what the world offers us. No, what sinners need, and we need it particularly as it relates to money, since this is what we're talking about, we need mercy. We need mercy that has been experienced through the gracious hand of God and it, revives, it invites us into full and unyielding repentance, whole self-repentance. So we're creatures, we're sinners, but dear brothers and sisters, don't forget we are also sufferers. See, life, as you and I both know, we live in this world, and you hear all the stats today about how much harder it is to, to live in this world, and everything's gotten so expensive, and blah, 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 blah. And I, again, you see these reels that come out and talking about some of our folks in here who may have bought a house in the 70s and you bought it for $40,000 and you're like, now it's worth $150 million or whatever it may be. You know, um, I get it. The struggle is real, right? And it, life can be awfully discouraging. But Romans, as we mentioned earlier, as we read in our initial part, Romans 18 through 23, just reminds us that groaning of creation, that it's real and we can, and we can, we can know and recognize that it's there and we're not, we, don't have to be, we don't have to be afraid of admitting what, life actually is and so perhaps this morning one of the ways in which you groan is that you just have struggled with poverty in some way struggled with just never feeling like you had enough or perhaps you've struggled with because uh, you suffered at the hands of someone else's greed with the great story of scrooge right the christmas carol you know and, and we can we can do that or maybe we suffer from poor modeling like i did of good financial management or we can suffer perhaps from just different contextual or, or physical sicknesses or ailments that just tend to constantly keep our, our, our finances in a wreck. There could be any number of reasons why we struggle in this area. And it may be any number of reasons why we are just not, we, we just have a struggle trusting God. But we must recognize that that suffering is real. Because if we don't admit that's there and we don't under, admit that that's behind, this is what we have, when I do counseling, this is one of the things that we try to work on with people is to, to admit what was there, not blame what was there. That's what we talk, tend to do. We tend to go victim mentality. We'll talk about that in a second. But, but admit what's there because what happens is, is that, that that whole story of suffering leads to cynicism. And not cynicism with everything else around us, but cynicism with God. That God's just not good enough and God's not going to provide and God's not going to show up. And what that ends up leading us to is, what I mentioned again, we vacillate between one of two great arcs in our life. Victimhood, and therefore we just dismiss all of our behavior and responses to life. Or I'm just going to be self-determined, and I'm going to fix this myself. And we tend to go back and forth with that. 
but neither of those approaches are sufficient for our suffering. No, what is sufficient for our suffering is our need to run to a God who is a fellow sufferer. That Christ is a fellow sufferer with us. Again, going to the, probably one of the greatest New Testament uh, 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 verses, passages on this. Philippians chapter 2. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord with one in one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. So we don't have to embrace victimhood or self-determination. We just we, we, we embrace humility. Why? Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others, and have this mind among you, you yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grass but emptied himself by becoming by taking on the form of a servant being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on the on a cross see sufferers don't need to just let the sin let, let the suffering define everything about them and to become victims and self-determining agents they need to run to a god who actually is a fellow sufferer with us and he understands the life in which we live. He lived it himself. And he understands the, the shrapnel that we experience in the life of suffering. So if we embrace these first three identities, what it does is it helps us reset and reframe and re, uh, rethink our relationship to money because then money doesn't have the control over us in ways that it often does. But let's also not forget the final and one of the most amazing truths, identities. We're saints. We're saints. Now, when we think about saint, we're not thinking about that kind of Roman Catholicism of where we believe people live of, of, of nearly divine level kind of people. But what the word saint really means, according to Scripture, is it's, it's referring to those who have been redeemed by grace, redeemed in Christ. Thus, we have the rights and privileges, the rights and privileges of God's children. And that's why, again, we read Romans 8, 12 through 17. Verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. This is our fundamental new identity. Heirs, children, and we have then the that, that we have the we have the right to go and trust and believe that our God will take care of His people. Now, here's the thing, though. Saints still do dumb things. I mean, Paul talks about this in Romans seven, verses twenty-one through twenty-five. For I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil is close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in many members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? But thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord, so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And what we need to remember with that passage as he then goes into chapter 8 and reminds us of our great inheritance we have in Christ and that we're spirit-born people, is that even though saints, saints are made as real children and we are who we are in Christ, we still, again, we do dumb things. We step over boundaries from time to time. We say we believe something, but oftentimes we don't live out what we believe. We fall into thinking that we're smarter than God. We question God's goodness. We give in to temptation. We lose our way, and we forget, most fundamentally, that we are children of God. And so saints are saints because we are, we are heirs, but it's so easy to forget that we are saints. See, here's the key to knowing that you're a saint. It isn't about what you're doing. It's about what God has done and is doing. That's the life of faith. It's not about what you and I are doing. 
It's about what God has done and is doing. Now, when we then think about all of this, this will transform our relationship, I believe, and it's, it's slowly been transforming my relationship with money over uh, the last several years. And so if we're going to begin to approach this topic of money over the next few weeks, and we want to do it God's way, we need to remember what we've just talked about, that we're creatures whose creator is the great playwright, director, and financier of our stories, that we are sinners and therefore need to own how we relate to money, repent, and experience God's mercy, strength, and power that transforms the way we relate to money, that we are sufferers who need to run to God, not from God, because we, are, because we have a great Savior who is undertaking the plight that you and I have lived in our living, and that we are saints with rights and privileges as sons and daughters of the King, and we have inheritance that is far greater than the riches that we'll ever find on this planet. So when we think about all of that as the foundation, here's what we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks. I'll give you a little bit of uh, a foretaste. Next week, we're going to look at the rede- how we redeem our view and relationship with money. We're going to get into the, the blessings the Bible talks about money and the cursings and the dangers of money that the Bible talks about. The week after that, we're going to look at God's heart for how we use our money. And then the last week, we're going to look at how grace shapes our spending, shapes our saving, and shapes our giving. And I hope by the time this is all said and done, here's my hope, here's my great hope. It'll free us to live unyoked from the lies and deceptions the world throws at us when it comes to money and wealth. We live in the most prosperous nation in history. Yet somehow or another, we found our ways to be in some of the, one of the most indebted nations in, in the world. How is that possible? We can live, and we are called to live as God's people differently, aren't we not? And we can grow as disciples who spend money with eternity in mind. We can grow as disciples who save money wisely but not, as, but not live as misers. We can grow as disciples who give generously both to the church and to others so we can do so in joy. And we can do all of that as we learn to live in this new identity we have in Christ. And that's my hope. This is just to be, hopefully give us a little taste of what these next few weeks will be. Church, I love you. And my hope and pray for this is that all this does is it sets us up for as long as Jesus tarries to grow and strengthen this body to have fruitful families, fruitful vocations, fruitful work and ministry in the church for many, many generations and decades to come. That's my whole hope. May God be glorified in the life of this church from what we've heard here today. Let us pray. Father, we love you. Thankful for your word. We're thankful for your word, and, and sometimes your word comes with, it comes with a bite, but it's always gives us, reminds us of the soothing embrace we have in Christ. So God, would you help your people, would you help me to continue to strive after with, with not with our own power, but with your strength in us to live lives that honor you in every area of our life. What Paul says Give all things and glorify God with every ounce of our being. And particularly as we think about it when we're money and wealth. That we might live a life that's not set on the meisms and the presentisms, but set on eternity. We love you, Jesus, and we thank you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.